everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring together, we, where we bring people together to have open cross-race conversations on race and bring race to the people. If you have ever wanted to talk about race but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or not being heard, then this podcast is for you. If you like what you hear today, then go to www.raceconvo.com, Convo Like Conversation, and download more episodes. If you really like what you hear today, then please share this, this show with your colleagues, friends, and everyone else you know. And if you really, really like what you hear and you want us to continue because we run our show based on donations, then please go to www.raceconvo, convo like conversation, raceconvo.com and leave a small donation or a large one. Or you can purchase one of my books on diversity and inclusion at www.simalieberman.com. I'm very excited about my guests today. I have two, two people who are both thought leaders, who are, who, are thought le- who are thought leaders and teachers, and have written and spoken extensively on Latino identity, including Latinx and the complexities of race, ethnicity, and culture. They are both teachers in institutions of higher learning, as well as passionate thought leaders and consultants in diversity, included, inclusion, and leadership. I'm excited to have Dr. Bernardo Ferdman and Placida Gallegos on my show today. So good morning, everybody. How are you two? Great. Great. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Buenos dias. Buenos Great dias to be here. Mm-hmm. So uh, my first question to you, and oh, is there anything that you would like to add about yourselves? that I might not have included. I mean, we'll have your bio on the site, but anything that we might, that you want to add, that you want people to know from the beginning. Well, in in service of gender equity, I'll have to say it's Dr. Ferdman and Dr. Gallegos. Okay. (laughs) So we're both, we're both PhDs. Uh, The way it sounded earlier, it might not have been clear. Oh, I meant to say, I'm excited to have doctors. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, having done, you know, research on this for the last 30 years or so, and including my original dissertation was on, on Latina and Latino leaders, you know, long time ago, before there was a field. So it's great to be here to continue the conversation. Excellent. Thank you. And Bernardo. Yeah, I, uh, I guess we're going to be telling some of our stories as we go through so I can say more about myself. I mean, you captured it. I'm a, you know, lifelong in this field and both in practice and in scholarship, really excited about uh, discussing all the nuances and complexities of uh, Latinx, Latino, Latina identity, culture, and how we think about an experience race in the context of the United States. Thank you so much. Thank you for being succinct. I mean, I've had people on my show where I said, was there anything else you want to add? And then they add like 20 minutes and I'm thinking, okay, so the show is your bio. All right. Thanks a lot. So we we won't name names. Yeah, no, we won't, we won't, we won't name, we won't name any names. Now I can see you all, but most people will not be able to see you on the show. So could you please each of you share your demographic? Graphics like your gender, um, your culture, race, anything that your, your generation, anything that that would help people get. I mean, they'll be able to look and see a picture of you on the side, but.
but while they're listening. So let's start with you, Placida. No. Okay. Great. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm a Latina, uh, Chicana, Mexican American, uh, somewhat, I guess I'd call myself an activist from way back, part of the Chicano movement back in the 70s. So uh, that was kind of my earlier days in, in terms of this work. But I would say growing up in, in the New Mexico, Colorado area, uh, I represent like one subset of the huge complexity of Latino identities because Latinos in the U.S. come from over 22 different countries. Uh, and so all of those have some distinctions, but I think also have a lot of similarity. And that's kind of the both of, of what we like to think about. Um, so I grew up in a big family, 10 kids, uh, all went to Catholic schools. So part of my experience comes through that uh, both a family experience and, and cultural experience. Um, and so I've been interested in, in what does it mean to be a Latina, Latino, Latinx, ever since my earliest memories were like confused about who are we and what does this all mean and why are people treating us this way? And, uh, you know, and so the confusion both within our group and as well as uh, in society have always fascinated me. So that's been part of it, part of what dri drove my whole career in this direction. Thank you so much. It fascinates me too, which is another reason why I'm so happy to have the two of you on the show. Okay, Bernardo. Okay, well, um, I'm uh, sitting in San Diego, California, where I lived. I lived here for about um, 26, going on 26 years. Uh, if uh, you ask me to describe myself a little bit, I'm a man. Um, I was uh, born a man. Um, so I guess that makes me cisgender. Um, I, um, if you see me, I'm wearing glasses, I'm bald on the top, and mostly bald, and I have a, mostly I get white with a little bit of gray beard, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm uh, white in the sense my family's uh, European background um, from a long time ago. So I was born uh, fourth generation in Argentina, in, uh, in South America. Uh, so I went from Argentina to the United States when I was um, seven years old, immigrated to New York um, and um, lived there for a few years until we moved to Puerto Rico. So, um, you know, I have a multi-Latino background in the sense that, you know, I've, I've been exposed to the Caribbean culture, to obviously the Argentinian culture and to um, Southern California, you know, Aslan, as you might want to call it, you know, Mexican, Mexican-American border, Chicano culture. Um, and it's really wonderful. And, and, oh, and I lived in Albany, New York for a number of years where I was part of a very diverse uh, Hispanic community and uh, was part of an organization there, Centro Cívico Hispanoamericano. So, you know, a lot of this work that we've done really comes from, from my own and our experiences, our diverse experiences as uh, Latino people. Um, Let's see. Uh, yeah, well, I guess as we get on, we'll get into the nuances that uh, Blasio referred to. But that's just the beginning stories about my background. Thank you. So, and you lived in Albany. That's interesting. Only because I'm from I the did. Bronx, and then uh, my parents, well, my sister moved to Albany, and then my parents moved to Albany later on when they when they sort of retired. So. Interesting. I just never think of Albany as kind of like happening. But hey, who am I? What do I know? It was, I, no, no, it's not, I won't describe it. I never said it's happening. I didn't say that. But well, it, I did live there and I, you know, I enjoyed it in a lot of certain things about it. But I, I'm much happier in San Diego, California, where it's really home. You know, my children were born here and, and this is really home. We're part of a sort of 
vital multi-ethnic very diverse community you know lots of our friends are from different latin american backgrounds among others and so that you know our, our children our children have really been raised in this kind of uh, very latinx uh, kind of context it's really interesting to see their own identifications i'm also jewish which uh, complicates things for some people you know people don't always understand you latino jews yes jewish latinos yeah of course and here it's not a big deal because there are so many yeah, and there's, lot, and there's a lot, and there's a lot, and there's a lot of there's a lot of of Latino Jews, of course, and, which is of why course. this is such an interesting conversation to me, it, and it's a complexity because so many times people want to make race and culture like one dimensional, and mm -hmm. it's not one dimensional. And I'm going to ask both of you: Do you think it's important? Well, obviously, I think you must think that it's important to talk about race because you're here, but. Personally, I'd like each of you to tell me why, or tell all of our listeners too, why you think it is important to talk about race from your own personal, personal thinking. Well, I would, I would start by saying, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Seema, about people afraid to say the wrong thing. Um, and I think these conversations are just wrought with, uh, you know, potholes or places where people can feel like they don't quite know where they are. And, and this includes people of color. I mean, I think they're, you know, it's not easy for anybody, uh, often because you expect to be misunderstood, you expect uh, to be challenged or questioned. And so we need to have new ways of having these conversations that include a lot more humility. I think where we're all coming to it in a way of we've all got work to do. And I know Bernardo and our with our, you know, 60, 70 years of experience combined in this field are always learning new things are always finding new dimensions and aspects of it. So um, so I think it's so important that way. Uh, race in particular is problematic and challenging for Latinos, and we talk a lot about this in our some of our writing, but part of it is because Latinos are not a race per se. You know, we have all races within us. And so if you think about, you know, we're kind of the ultimate uh, mixture, you know, we're the ultimate blending of cultures because our ultimately our, our, our European Spanish father, uh, you know, met our, uh, our indigenous mothers across all the various different countries and configurations. So in some ways we have the oppressor and the oppressed within us. Um, and so people are often confused about us, including some Latinos who don't quite understand where we fit in this very complicated uh, dynamic that often is framed mostly in, in black and white terms. And, uh, you know, and again, since we have blackness and we have whiteness, uh, you know, within our group and most of us are, are some combination of brown, um, you know, it becomes really important to listen to each other and understand that. Um, and also to, to what I would focus on as much is the notion of colorism and yes. how skin color privilege plays out and how our appearances before we speak, before anyone knows anything about us, they see our color and our features. And I think those, um, you know, that often we don't have the nuances of talking about how uh, that immediate judgments that come with color get embedded into what's considered a racial conversation, which is partly racial, partly about ethnicity, partly about color. Um, you know, so those just are some of the complexities that make it such a critical conversation, especially as we try to provide support for people to, to, to really take these conversations into the workplace, into education, into organizations, you know, that we need to be able to talk more about it rather than less. Thank you. And that's a large part of what I want to talk about today, too. Bernardo. Yeah, um, I, I really 
resonate with uh, everything that Placida said. What I would um, add is that I think, um, well, I, I approach this from the perspective of a psychologist. Uh, I was trained in social psychology. I work in organizations and I really take the social context into account. And so what I know and what I've learned and what I see is that race is not a thing that's out there by itself. It's a, a human construction. It's something that we create in our relationships. Um, it doesn't mean that any individual can act like it's not there and doesn't influence them, but you know, it's how people see us, how we see others, and what we make of that together, you know, in our, in our societies, in our groups, in our organizations. And so what I have seen and experienced in moving between places and in studying the subject and engaging with people on it is what we do with that. You know, also as a, as a Jew, I'm very aware of how racialization was done during the Holocaust by the Nazis. You know, if you go to the uh, uh, Museum of the Holocaust in, in Washington, D.C., you can see that history very clearly. What the Nazis did was um, racialize a group of people. In other words, just say that these differences are immutable, they're based on heritage and so on. And, you know, in a sense, when we, when we look at race in that way, which we often do, uh, not intentionally, but it's really talked about that way, it's almost like perpetuating that kind of ideology. On the other hand, to act like it's not there is not real. There are real differences between, between groups and their outcomes based on those perceptions and the way it's institutionalized. It, you know, you don't have to go to Nazi Germany. You can just think about U.S. history and, and the history of, of chattel slavery. And the, the repercussions of that have not gone away. I'm sure you've talked a lot about that in your other podcasts. And so Latino and Latina people have the own, you know, our own histories in our own uh, countries of origin, as well as the United States, and then dealing with that history in the United States. You know, what happens with those perceptions as Latinos who are very diverse? I mentioned my own, um, you know, European ancestry, Jewish European ancestry from the, you know, from the 19th century and before. And Placida talked about her own, you know, mix of sort of indigenous and European background in the context of the United States. And so, you know, we have this diversity, what joins us. So it fascinates me to really talk about it and to make it more complex and say, hold on, we have this social construction that really affects us. But what we really have to look at is this idea of how we racialize ourselves and others and what that does to our lives and what we need to do about that to create more social justice, more inclusion, more acceptance and incorporation of diversity. So for me, it's really about how we have to not transcend race, but to understand what it is in a way that benefits us together more than continue to hurt us. Thank you very much. I, I love. I really have to tell you, I, I love this. I love having this conversation on so many levels, which I'll, I'll share with you as we as we continue. When did each of you become aware of issues or become aware of? Skin color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or so with me, somebody who was like a I different skin color. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I know that in Argentina, it's a, it's there, but it's much more latent. People act like it doesn't matter. The history in Argentina is that um, people of African descent were, there were many, but they were kind of like, they went to a war and there's just not that many and they pride themselves on being European. So some of my initial awareness was based on lack of awareness right growing up in buenos aires you know very city with very strong immigrant ba uh, backgrounds 
but there is a distinction if you look at people who were service people or who were from the interior of the country or whatever darker people more indigenous you know my, my you know in the north of the country where my father was from there was more people with more indigenous background as well so I think I was aware of that, but you know, I was young. In the United States, I had to deal with it right away. You know, when we were classified as soon as we came with Puerto Ricans, we spoke Spanish, we didn't speak English. We were living in a neighborhood for a month or two where it was mostly Puerto Rican and people saw us as being exactly the same and we didn't. And so that was the first awareness. And then going to my elementary school where it was sort of, you know, one of these integrated schools where kids from uh, more African-American neighborhoods came by bus and I had to learn what you know who are these people that i didn't understand or know and what were some of these tensions and it was bewildering um so it kind of you know started there i always was trying to make sense of it um as an immigrant who was learning english while i was trying to go to school in second grade and just figuring out the stuff that didn't make sense to me Placida. good yeah um I'd, I'd have to say it, it was always in my awareness in some ways and especially growing up in a family because I think families are often where we get some of the earliest messages about who we are and especially around power, who has power, what's better, what's not. And so in my family, given that there were 10 siblings, uh, we kind of covered the color spectrum from some being very light skinned and some being very dark skinned. And it became very clear within the family that it was better to be light and it was worse to be dark. Uh, and that theme, I think, carried out, you know, carried on and um, was also intermingled with gender because it, I was also grew up in a family that said it was better to be a boy than a girl. Um, and there were a lot of ways that when girls were born, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the boy was born and suddenly it was celebration, lights came on, you know, it was like, we have a son. And I was like, as a kid, what does that mean? It's just another baby, but why does it make such a difference, you know, that he's a boy and, and again, that has cultural aspects to it. So I think the idea of always kind of being curious about power and how power gets uh, distributed based very clearly on lightness and darkness. Um, and then when that when I went into school and uh, we weren't allowed to speak Spanish because we, we grew up in the Southwest and the and the teachers would punish the children if they spoke Spanish. And so by the time I came up and my other siblings, we were we were spoken to. They, my parents would speak to us in Spanish, but we had to answer them in English. And so as a result, I didn't, I don't have an accent and I, and, and so it was quite amazing to nuns and others, they would say, well, you look like a regular brown child, but you sound like a white person. And that was like a sort of an anomaly that I didn't really understand until much later, how the language was in some ways taken away from you uh, by the powers that be, uh, and that had to do with color in a, in a nuanced way. So. Uh, Sima? Oh, you had a question. I wanted to clarify a couple of things. No, go, the, go the ahead and clarify, my brother. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No, I think one of the things that's coming up as we speak, I realize, is, is what's confusing to a lot of people are these terms, these terms, these ideas, you know, yeah, I was race, ask about that. Good. ethnicity, culture. And I think for Latino, Latina, Latinx people kind of confound that for people and bring it out to the fore. You know, race, as I suggested earlier, is really about this assumption that there's this like immutable or unchangeable aspect of people that gets transmitted over time. It could be based on color or whatever it is, but it's really just based on, you know, genetics and what people look like, right? F the interpretation of sort of physical characteristics and then what that means for groups of people. Uh, in the United States, historically, 
there's a sense that any African ancestry makes you black, right? Right. What we call one, the drop. one drop. The one drop law. And uh, for you know Latinos, kind of you know, there's a really a, a history of combination of you know African, uh, indigenous, uh, you know, a first American and and um, European in ways that confound that because the categories there were categories there are categories but they're very different and they're much more of a spectrum rather than either or um, so that's kind of the race part the the ethnicity part is really about share a sense of shared ancestry and culture right a sense of being like someone and that doesn't automatically involve a sense of you know better or worse right because race has implicit in it this idea that one group is better or worse it's a fraught and concept that the whole point is to you know create these hierarchies whereas ethnicity is not about that it's more like you know we have these different backgrounds and perspectives and and and, and cultures and histories now sometimes it's imagined right in the sense that if you really look historically there isn't this full connection but that's okay and then um culture is what we do our beliefs our attitudes our practices you know everything that goes along with that for a group of people and we get those all mixed up right it's, and so and, and even for Latino, Latina people are confused about that. And so what Plassi and I sought to do in our work was to try to sort this out a little bit and say, what are the different ways that Latino and Latina people orient ourselves in the United States to so the racial system? And then how do we think about culture and ethnicity in that context, right? And so we came up with this idea of what we call ethno-racial orientations, right, to make things even more complicated. <laughs> you can't really separate the two things, you know? It's kind of connected, right? Even though, like, the census tries to do it, other people try to do it, which is why, you know, sometimes Latinos say, you know, yes, um, this is a racial thing, and sometimes it's not, depending on who and where and when, right? right. And, and I know it's always about, and it's always about adapting to the environment. You know, yeah. it's not something sort of fixed in the person as much as coming into contact with these power dynamics that decide who has more access and who doesn't. Um, that makes it, uh, you know, part of a, a, an adaptive quality rather than fixed, as Bernardo said. Now, I grew up in New York, in the Bronx, and at the time, there was a lot of, of prejudice and discrimination against people from Puerto Rico. So, I mean, I knew people who had Spanish last names, and they would want everybody to know whether it's true or not that they weren't Puerto Rican. They'd say, oh, no, my name's, I'm from Spain. My name right. is, one guy said, yeah, I'm Spanish. Because he didn't want people to think that he was Puerto Rican. And yeah. then I was other places where, so, so it's like if you were Puerto, there was discrimination against Puerto Ricans, but not if you were Venezuelan. Mm. A white Venezuelan or a black Afro, you know, Afro Venezuelan. Almost any or? Venezuelan, because it it was <laughs> it was just discrimination against Puerto Ricans at that time. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I know things have changed. I mean, there's always discrimination based on skin color. Um, but I, I just I just remember that. Or if people are from Mexico, people looked at them very differently. Whereas out right. here in California. A lot of it is around anybody from Mexico, Mexico, or or Honduras mm -hmm. or Guatemala. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. What I would want to note, really call out, is that 
how how we come to the, you know that part of it is how I see myself, my own identity. But so much is how I get treated and how I'm seen by others, and that's where this regional piece comes in. Because on the East Coast, Puerto Rican, you know, the emphasis there on the West Coast, it's much more Mexican American, you know, in terms of the largest uh, population of Latinos in that area, which becomes then the group that is most um, out or most despised or most you know vilified. And so to think about um, you know, when those of us, you know, like the people you mentioned, Seema, want to say, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not Puerto Rican. It's not because they have some inherent sense of not liking their group, but because they've gotten that message from society outside of themselves that tells them it's not good to be Puerto Rican. So you better claim the European side. Yeah. And so that you'll see that in New, in New Mexico, in California, other places where people want to identify with just one part of who they are. Um, versus both and and so you know to hold hold all of that so i think it's always about uh our relationship to the power structures that we find ourselves thrown in whether it's family school or 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 larger society the media certainly gives us a lot of negative mm -hmm. messages about our groups and uh certainly with the latest the recent you know the current political environment that makes you know really is vilifying all things mexican in a way that is is new and even more vicious than it has been in the past well and you know, one of the things that's that, oh, go oh, sorry go ahead Simon. i was just saying at, at that time it was a, a long time ago that a lot of the last name people going by lesson was around housing discrimination mm -hmm. and yeah I mean, names is a big deal because yeah. people um you know, people are sometimes trying to change them to adapt, and they see that from a positive way. But then on the other hand, it, it submerges that identity, and then people don't realize the background of people. So there's a lot of uh, people of Latino background who, you know, maybe they have a Latino last name, but they pronounce it different, you know, instead of Quinones, Quinones, or instead of Roberto, you know, Bobby, you know. And then so that, it just, you know, gets sort of... Um, some, some uh, you know hidden in a way almost and so then people who are not um of that of those backgrounds see that person say oh they're like this what about those other people and don't see the connections between them either and that happens for latinos as well right and so we each orient depending where we grew up how we grew up what messages we got as, as placida explained we're going to orient ourselves in different ways to this larger system and the larger identities, right? And then, of course, when we go to college or other places, things, you know, might sensitize us in different ways, but it could go in two different directions. Like, you know, for some of us, like when I went from the island of Puerto Rico, you know, to, I was in high school there, and then I went to college, right? And in college, I was coming from Puerto Rico. People didn't know anything about Puerto Rico. They would be, there would be so many stereotypes, like, you know, how did you, you know, I used to tell people, I like, used to communicate with smoke signals just as a joke. <laughs> and some people half believed it, you know, it was crazy. Or people wouldn't accept my driver's license, you know. This was back that in the That still 70s, happens. Right? It does. It happened to my sister-in-law the other day when she came to visit us just last week. She was coming here and, or she was flying from Puerto Rico to, um, you know, D.C. And the, the you know, she, or I mean, from D.C. to here or whatever. But she was asked, you know, do you have a U.S. license? And she was showing her Puerto Rico driver's license. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, th that's ignorance, but it's, it's systematic ignorance, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's not random. And what, what power is there more than the power to name you? You know, I get to name you. And that's what schools did, you know, where they would say, well, we can't pronounce that name. So we're just going to call you Daniel. 
instead of perfecto. Like one of my brothers was named Perfecto. And the nun said, we can't say that. He, he's Daniel. Go home a different name wow. because they, it was always about convenience. You know, that's not convenient for us. So we rename you. And many people, it's not till they go into get into adulthood that they reclaim the name that was taken from them before they had any wherewithal to resist the right. pressures that, that they were put under. Now, you mentioned now the term... The oh. most common, um, you know, the, the, there's almost 60 million Latinos in the U.S. or Hispanics or Latinx, the terms. I want to explain something about the terms, but, you know, one of the most common last names is Rodriguez or Gonzalez, you know, but people don't always realize that. You know, they, they construct other stories also because we're not spread evenly throughout the country, right? So even though it's like eight more than 18% of the population, in some places, it's much less. Other places, way more. Like in California, where you know, yeah. we're like 40, 50 percent, or whatever. Well, and I want to ask, um, you talk. You use the term Chicano. Can you define that for people? Hmm. Yeah, I guess the you know the the you know in in con in contrast to Bernardo's experience as an immigrant, uh, there are many of us who were not immigrants. You know, we've been in the same area. You know, the Southwest, the New Mexico area, uh, for generations. When it was Mexico, we were we were still there, and so so the country came to us rather than we came to the country. Um, and so growing up in that in that way, um, the the um, the you know the civil rights movement, the the black you know, power movement, the women's movement all came, uh, you know, at the late 60s and 70s. And those of us who were in high school and college at that time uh, really were founded a reawakening of our culture that we were fi we finally understood some of the societal pressures that we've been experiencing. And it was suddenly, oh, lights went on. It's not just me. It's not just my family. There are these larger systems that are at play. Um, and so it was, was, you know, part of what we became, the Chicano movement, which was reclaiming ourselves. And so you'll hear terms like, you know, Hispanic is a much more conservative um, representation of the group, but Mexican-American and Chicano represents an activism, you know, a sense of, yes, we are, we are Latinos, but we're also Latinas, Latinos with uh, a, a, an urgency about changing society and changing the power relations that we find ourselves in. So it's it's definitely a term of of a you know Mexican American with a an activist orientation is a is a Chicana Chicano. No, I went to actually, I think I told Bernardo this. I mm -hmm. went to a mostly Chicano college called Colegio Cesar Chavez, and I was the only mm -hmm. white mm -hmm. non-Hispanic person in the school. I got recruited, and. Mm -hmm. It was seen frontera, so it was without without walls. It was That's great. at the time. It Lucky was, you. It, yeah, at the time it was it, at the time it was very revolutionary. But I remember like the older people who now I guess would be like my age, but at the time they were older. They they were like, what's all this Chicano stuff? Because some oh. of the people, older people, were all from Mexico, and almost everybody or most of the people who mm -hmm. went to the school had worked in the fields. Mm -hmm. It's, unfortunately, yeah. it's, it no longer it no longer exists. Mm. But mm -hmm. I was wondering. You know what, go ahead. You know what, what's interesting is for some people, there's a dynamic there, um, which Placia kind of alluded to. But for for many Mexican Americans, Chicano was a negative term a long time you know a long time ago, right? People have grown into it because now, you know, people who were in the Chicano movement are older. But, you know, in the 60s, people who adopted the term, their families sometimes didn't see it as a, necessarily a positive thing. 
but it's kind of you know it's it's like uh you know the difference like when black power came about right yeah um because the tensions that Placida mentioned of like fitting in versus you know creating revolution or change you know more active change so for me as i understand the term it kind of maintains some of that as Placida mentioned but also just linguistically if you think about the term mexicano you know as a sort of a more indigenous way of pronouncing mexica you know uh, the mexica people and so it's kind of has that origin right um and there's a lot of terms like that that people just use but we don't really always know the history you know boricua for puerto ricans it's the island of borinquen or new yorican for puerto ricans from new york you know um but you know latinx is a term that people are really confused about do you want yeah, me to so say I was something ask. about that could, could you could yeah. you could you explain could you explain latinx please yeah some people uh talk some there's different ways to pronounce it you know like latinx is is a, a pretty common way you know with that latino kind of you know spanish pronunciation um the term latino or latina those terms are gendered you know a a, a, a a woman would be a latina a man would be a latino and then in spanish it used the t traditionally used the uh, male construction the, f the masculine construction i'm sorry to refer to the group that includes both both genders um and so as people realize that gender is not necessarily binary you know people who are don't fit into the binary genders and then also lgbt people say wait a second this is just doesn't fit us very well and so let's create something else that became a term of resistance and inclusion um so a lot of people are trying to trying to use it as a gender neutral alternative and it's become much more accepted it's now in the dictionary and it's a lot of universities and others are are using that instead of uh, uh latino or latina if we use latin by itself it's it's more anglicized and it you know it's latin refers to the language that was spoken in rome you know in the roman empire so that's kind of confusing and that leads to yeah. so uh latinx has become much more and more accepted it's uh and you know but it's not everyone understands it or uses it so we kind of mix it all up mm -hmm. and i would i would add that you know with all these terms that you know because society is constantly changing the terms are constantly changing so it's mm -hmm. like a moving target you know what mm -hmm. used to be acceptable you know becomes you know shifts over time and so one of the problems problematics i think with the latinx term is this very notion that it does let go of the gender dynamic and given that for latinas in particular there are real issues of sexism that persist within the culture and in society and so uh i consider myself latina latinx you know it's both because i think it's important to call out uh the issues uh, you know related to that as well so you know and i'm sure it'll keep changing i'm sure it'll keep changing and people sometimes get say i wish you would just decide what it is and then hold it there so we won't be confused but because our, our you know society's dynamic the words are always going to be dynamic and some of them will always have problems and and uh, be able to be challenged but they they have meaning that that fits kind of the current you know the current situation or context that we're in well do you think that the term latinx is going to become generally accepted beyond say young people or 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 people who don't want to make all the gender distinctions do you think that yeah more people cause i was watching I, some videos it's really funny about about they were asking people and uh they were asking latin people and people people said yeah i think it's great and, you know they're giving ideas uh giving reasons same reasons that you talked to and some other people said what 
you know so <laughs> so what yeah. are we supposed to do like instead of like tia and to do we say ticks <laughs> well there are that's an issue that's an issue uh or in spanish in general so i've read some critiques of the term because the term latino latina was a way to resist the term hispanic for yeah. many and um uh, and and to to, to de-emphasize the spanish roots right hispanic kind of privileges the spanish part on the other hand that's what unites all those countries and backgrounds is that connection to colonial spain in a way but apart from that latino latina was a way to resist that and it, it, it was a way to have a more Spanish-rooted word, right? With a Spanish kind of cons language construction. And um, so Latinx kind of takes that away on some level because you can't use that in the Spanish language until you change the Spanish language. So it's very controversial. And there's a lot of Spanish speakers who are resisting that term uh, as well. So it's not just a, you know, an external thing of people who are confused. It's internal divisions about what the right term is. But I do think that it has moved in terms of uh, accessibility and use quite quickly into yes. the public, into the mainstream. So I think there is yeah. something about where we are right now that is making it uh, very prominent. And I, I hear it a lot in academic institutions. So a lot of people are sort of adopting it pretty quickly um, in terms of uh, a categorization. But so I think it will continue to, to do that, but I wouldn't be surprised if in five years or so something else emerges um, that continues to you know, define where we are. Or maybe that just becomes the term and everybody's like, oh yeah, man, mm -hmm. we always use that term. You know, like, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like maybe. Other you terms know, that, yeah, exactly. that come up here. And I, I also find interesting in terms of like race, culture, ethnicity, so you have Latinx, um, and that's all encompassing. But then at the other, on the other hand, you have a lot of different cultures within mm -hmm. the culture. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I also was wondering For if sure. you've had people say like, um, Bernard, have you ever had anybody say, "Oh, well, hey, you're white. You know, how could you be? How could you be Latino? You're white." Um, yeah, I mean, it happens all the time in the sense that, you know, I could be, you know, I was in, I was in Mexico in the summer in, uh, in uh, Yucatan and, um, you know, I'm standing in line, you know, to get food or something and I'm talking in Spanish and somebody looks at me and say, wow, que bien, que hablas español, how, you know, your Spanish is so good, where'd you learn? So I say at home, you know, <laughs> I didn't learn English till I was seven. And, um, you know, he was like surprised, you know, people here in San Diego, people in Mexico do that a lot you know, um, to assume, you know, in Puerto Rico I used to have it to me, especially when I was dressed like a preppy, you know, like I'd wear, I'd come home from college, I'd be wearing like a pink shirt and like khaki shorts and I'd look like, you know, an Anglo tourist. And people would just, I would speak to them in Spanish and they would respond in, in English, like, you know, <laughs> even though I was speaking perfect Spanish. Yeah. So, yeah, it happens. Um, but, you know, the reality is that on the census, um, like 62% of people who say, yes, I'm Hispanic or Latino also say that they're white, Yeah. you know, on the 2010 census. So like, um, like 60, you know, it's, it's a large proportion. And so, and so there's privileges and benefits that come from, you know, if other people see me that way also, I get white identified, I get white privilege, you know, and that's yeah. many Latinos <laughs> have that and social indicators bear that out that, you know, um, uh, there's, you know, as you get up the, you know, up the social economic scale, we'll let Latinos get whiter. 
or vice versa, right? And, and, so and to, color matters a lot. And the, Latino on the other experience. end of the continuum, we know from a lot of black Latinos and Latinas that, was my that they get, uh, you know, have a similar, you know, and yeah. worse problem, if you will, that they're seen both by Latinos and by African Americans as not fitting in because they are mm -hmm. right at the at the intersection of those. So Latinos can be black, can be white, and, and many of us are many shades of brown in between. And so we don't fit. Uh, mm -hmm. though, those categories, but people definitely have assumptions about what, what is a Latino and what counts and what doesn't and who gets to include themselves. So I think individually, it's always about how the person c relates, what they name themselves. So I always want to know, how do you call yourself? How do you prefer to be called individually? And then what Bernardo and I talk about a lot in our work is, is the, the sort of across group and the value of also saying we have a lot in common in spite of all those individual differences. And, and certainly in terms of organizing, we're a much stronger force politically if we can recognize the similarities and that people you know look at us and 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 we're treated our groups are treated often in a similar way regardless of what country you're from yeah from I mean, a, yeah I, thank I, you yeah can i build on that go Sima? go ahead yeah from a from a sort of um ethnic and racial perspective the context the idea of latinos or hispanics as one group is sort of it's a it's a creation in the united states yeah i wasn't really a hispanic or latino till i got off the plane in uh in kennedy airport in 1966 you know uh, my wife who immigrated from argentina as well as an adult same thing you know much later you know we were argentinos argentinian you know and, and yes we felt a lot of you know, could feel a lot of connection to other latin american countries and to Latinos in the U.S. and that that idea has grown over time, um, but it's different. Uh, there, you know, the the connection among all the Latin American countries was more nationalist in a way, right? You know, or anyway, I won't get into the history, but so, you know, the U.S. They, construction, but the U.S. in con or in contrast to the U.S. and the differences, the sense of solidarity. But there's a real sense of difference between Mexicans, Argentinians, uh, Colombians. These are very different histories, cultures, as you say. Yet in the U.S., there's a sense of affinity and connection, and there are some values and approaches that do connect us. Those are not racial or even ethnic, and yet we construct it that way. So it's it's a sort of a function of having been in the U.S. across these identities. People intermarry, they connect, they they create communities together, right? That mix up all these different groups, and so um, it becomes. And so what Plassi and I have done in our work is to really think about. How do all these different groups orient ourselves to this racial system of the U.S. without, and in a way that we can say is true to some extent across all these different groups? Because historically, people just differentiate Argentinians, Colombians, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, etc., Mexican Americans. But we said, well, what is it across all of all of our groups? And so we just thought about ways that eat, we adapt systematically to the system, ranging from people who just go along with the you know, black-white system and identify as white and really don't think about it much, and then other people who pretty much stay with their own group, right? Like, I'm Argentinian, I'm Mexican, and really mm -hmm. don't see the connection between them. Or people who really see all these complexities, it is integrations. And so we have this, this theory about all these six, six, six different approaches that people could take, um, you know, trying to generalize in a way to try to capture some of these dynamics. Well, how do you think color issues play out as opposed to like overall U.S. Mm -hmm. 
issues around color. I mean, because like you said, you have you have you have you you have you have Latinx people who are black, who are brown, who are white, who are darker, who are lighter. Remember, I don't know if you remember. Well, I don't know if you were in this country, um, Bernardo, but you might remember, remember a lighter shade of brown. The group. Um. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. I did. No, they were great. Huh? I, I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so, how does that? How does it? How do? You, how does it manifest? Yeah, I mean, it's been, look. First of all, it's been there in the Latin American countries. Color and race has been an issue in Latin American countries, and don't let people tell you otherwise. People say, "Oh, we don't have racial issues yeah, in people Latin say America." That. That's not true. Even Cuba, which is a very um, you know, socialist country and presumably has equality of everyone. It's not true. The more you get into the government and higher classes and so on, you know, like better off people, the Communist Party and so on, the whiter they are. And that's true across the board in most of the Latin American countries. You mentioned Venezuela. You know, Hugo Chavez was an exception. That's part of his success was he really appealed to the, you know, to the masses who were tended to be more Afro-Venezuelan, right? Um, so that's a legacy of the colonial history of how, what Spain did and so on. So that manifests now in what Placida mentioned, which is preference for, you know, um, for lighter skin, you know, lighter eyes, lighter hair, you know, things like that. You know, I remember when my um, daughter was born and she had very light eyes and like, you know, somebody, a Mexican person like said, oh, no, she's so, they're so nice, you know, like kind of implying that someone was better than brown eyes. And this is a person who was, you know, brown skin. It's internalized, right? And so that's just what's coming with it. And then on top of it, you add the prejudice against blacks in the United States yeah. and the racist systems and the discrimination and the and all of that. You know, there's this sense that white is better that is problematic. You know, so that, that's why a lot of Afro Latinos are now coming out and saying, "I am Afro Latino proudly," right, rather than having to choose. And I and and I think we all grew up in some ways or heard the the statement, you know, if you're black, get back. If you're white, you're right. And if you're brown, stick around. Yes. Uh, is you know, yes. so there's so much in that that was kind of just baked into our our consciousness. And I think you know, it really is, um, you know, how do you, how do you begin to have a positive sense of yourself in the in that context? And and you really have to be um, self-authoring in terms of sort of saying, here's how I choose to. Uh, associate with and and appreciate my cultural racial background because then I think you have a healthy sense of self versus taking in and automatically uh, absorbing these social uh, constructions. And the popular popular culture has helped to do this also. It's blurred some of the lines, right? So, you know, go back to salsa, which was really you know, something created in New York with a Latin, you know, as a Latin jazz but with its own, you know, Caribbean flavor. You took all the Caribbean music and turned it into this blend. And it was really about, you know, Willie Colon and others really were trying to transcend any particular one source, like Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic or whatever, and created this kind of blend. And then that's gone on like that. If you, you know, there's a lot of people who are studying that. Gloria Stefan and Emilio Stefan, you know, their words, if you look at the words of their songs, it's really about that. And, you know, and now Jennifer Lopez is someone, reggaeton, you know, a lot of these things that are really helping the broader community and Latinos ourselves see this kind of connections and intersections and complexities. Yeah, and if you look at, I, well, I, I think it's interesting because we, we, it's time is, is moving on. And I, of course, I couldn't discuss 
issues around Latin culture without talking about what's going on with immigration. But <laughs> also, I look at, I think it's kind of a big FU that some of the top in pop music today, like some of the people who are on top right now are people like Jay Balvin, Bad Bunny. I mean, this is after Enrique Iglesias, but the people who are, are today, um, even Cardi B. So you have all of these people, and there's a lot of um, collaborations. But a lot of the music, Despacito, so a lot of the music is in Spanish. You know, and you have these people who are in grocery stores, speak English, blah, 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 blah. So I love that the people who are on top of it, that a lot of the people are on top of the charts now, a lot of it is, is, is people singing in Spanish or singing a mixture and bringing in like Drake to do stuff with J Balvin. I just think that that's really cool. And, and Ozuna. So I, there's some really good young musicians. So I would like mm -hmm. to get some comments from you two about the racial aspect of what's going on with the wall and immigration. And the reason I'm asking the two of you is because I've had a couple of people on the show and I asked them if there was a racial tinge to the immigration and neither one would touch it. Neither <laughs> one would touch it. I said, well, I don't yeah. know. It seems kind of obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll start by, by saying I think there's a lot of ambivalence in this country in relation to Latinos in general and Mexican-Americans and Mexicans in particular. Uh, and I think that ambivalence is kind of like how dependent. I, I don't know if you saw that movie that came out, you know, A Day Without Mexico. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. And, and it was it's great. just so Bye. obvious that the country would not survive without, you know, food and all the various ways that Latinos support the, you know, the whole uh, society. So there's a love hate. As our numbers have grown, then there's more of a, okay, this is too much. These are too many. And, and a vilification of our group. And so I think there's both a dependence and an appreciation culturally, the music and the, the beauty of Latinas, you know, the JLo's and all, you know, the beauty that is represented in the culture and the passion that, that we have as a group. So there's a, an appreciation of that and at the same time wanting to shut it down, turn it down, turn it off. Um, and so we walk that fine line where we're both in some ways elevated and in, in many ways vilified and, and considered, uh, you know, less than. So how we walk those contradictions is part of the challenge of being Latina, Latina, Latinx. What do yeah. you think, Bernardo? Well, thank you. Well said. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, if I think about sort of the rhetoric used by the uh, country's uh, officials, you know, the top officials, um, especially the one top official, um, you know, you see the, a pattern. I was thinking about that this morning, you know, hearing the latest comments. And I thought back to when he started running for office and it was based on this idea that Mexicans are gangsters and rapists and this horrific kinds of characterizations. You know, I think you could see that as a very racialized kind of view, you know, a singular view of a group. That's what, you know, very monolithic, very much based on just your 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 origins as if somehow that defines your your personality that's racialization you know and, and that's connected to this idea of characterizing um mexicans as terrorists and gangsters and then association with the islamophobia and the you know fear of muslims uh you know that's that's a racialization in a way as well right and, and you see course, it in movies you see it in in popular culture you, that you mentioned 
you know, um, there was an interesting article in the, um, a column in the New York Times um, yesterday about this, about the, you know, Latino characters in movies, you know, and how these, these gangsters, drug people, whatever. And then that just gets into people's heads, you know. And so that's what's happening is that, that the conversation about this wall is a way to magnify that. It's a way to, people don't even realize that that's happening. And then we all kind of internalize it, we use it, and then we start seeing other the, the, that group as the other, those Mexicans, mm-hmm. that caravan. This is not individual people who are trying to get the same thing that my family was trying to get when we immigrated, but we just happened to be lucky and had the resources, and the law was on our side, and that my father got a green cards for all of us with a job offer, a job that he didn't even have taking. So we were just able to do that by the way that the laws were. There's no difference from the people who are trying to come now. Right. And the worst it's worse for them because they're under attack by, you know, the real criminals there that were anyway, it's a long story. But yeah, yeah. It, so so you see, it's very racialized in my understanding, you know, and this idea of putting a wall just feeds right into that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think this the idea what came up around p- separating parents and children was kind of a quirk in that whole picture because suddenly they became real people who have parents and children separated was such a fundamental idea that it wasn't it was it made it more difficult to see them as 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 an it as those people when we said oh you know it could be me with my child being taken away from from me and so so i think those things kind of have people stop and and um and you know really become um, more sensitive, but it doesn't last and it's not held long enough because, it, of course, it's always been a human issue, but if we can see them as, as criminals and murderers, then we don't have to think of them as people like us. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm also, and I'm also concerned about the racism that, that people feed their kids, where the kids will go to school and mm-hmm. talk to some, to some Latino, Latina kids and say, build the wall. You don't belong mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to yeah. say that. No, I love you know I love people from Canada. But if we had like masses of people coming from Canada, chances are they're not going to say, "Hey, ma- they're massing at the border from Canada. We got to keep them out." Mm-hmm. And there is so much coming from Canada, but it's an open door rather than a you know sort of stay out. Uh, see, yeah, yeah. And, and what this racial idea does, it, it magnifies the, the, you know, the differences. I mean, here on the, I live in San Diego and we have, you know, right at the board, it's very much a binational community. There's a lot of people that go back and forth. I have friends who, you know, their business is in Tijuana or their job, others who come, you know, to work or go to school here. Um, it's really a binational community and interdependent. You know, if the board is closed, the business is in the south bay of san diego suffered tremendously you know people can't go to work they can't buy things and vice versa and so you know there's a misunderstanding that somehow people here want that division on the contrary not not at all Uh, most people don't because they understand that it's the lifeblood of of the place to have that and people are, are are very interconnected you know culturally geographically physically um, and, and by creating this image of either a wall or a virtual wall or whatever, it kind of makes believe that like that's the end of the line here when it's really just the, the biggest crossroads in the world is the Tijuana-San Diego border. And, you know, and also when people know people who are different, when they have like conversation, it's harder to hate people. And I think that as long as they manage to stay separate and afraid, 
They managed to perpetuate those racist, nationalist uh, mindset that they just pass on to everybody else. Right. That's right. Yeah. And you mentioned language. I think it's a good example, especially within organizations. We see it where where when they need someone to translate, it's like, please get me a bilingual person here. But then if you're in the lunchroom or the workroom and people are just engaging in Spanish, you know, go back to Mexico, don't speak that language. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of mixed messages, you know, and an unwillingness to recognize the importance across the country of having bilingual people as a special value versus a group that's that's costing you anything. It's a group that's adding, you know, to your ability to do whatever it is your mission is. Well, it's really scary, which you is know, one speaking reason. Speaking of language, I just wanted to say something about language, is that people think that um, Latinos in the U.S. are primarily Spanish speakers. And the reality is that Latinos in the U.S. are primarily bilingual. Uh, because 90, you know, like 90% of, um, well, 90% of U.S.-born Latinos speak only English at home or English very well. And that constitutes two-thirds of Latinos, by the way, are U.S.-born. And it's like 60-some percent of Latinos overall are proficient, or two, three-quarters of Latinos are proficient in English. And so, but three, a big, huge percentage are also proficient in Spanish. So it's really important for people to understand that, right? If we really, what we want is bilingualism. Most Latinos want, you know, most immigrants want their kids to be proficient in English, and they do everything they can to promote that. Our research has shown by the second generation, people are people are, are talking. People are are fluent in English. No, we're getting close to the end of the show. Now, if you're ever in this area, because I record from MutinyRadio.fm, so we're in a recording studio. Actually, this is live streamed, and then we make it into a podcast. So, if you're ever in the San Francisco area. Uh, you have to come by the studio, which is where we record radio, which is mutinyradio.fm, and anybody can go to mutinyradio.fm and even listen to the many more shows. So before we close, I want to ask each of you any last-minute brief statements, and also, how can people reach you? Anyone can go first. <laughs> Bernard, right, go, go ahead. Okay. I'm looking right at Yeah, you. I would say, uh, in terms of reaching me, uh, I have a website, FerdmanConsulting.com. Spelled. And I have a contact form there. Spelled. Um, and uh, you, can, you can also Google me and you'll find writing and other things. So, FerdmanConsulting.com is my website. Um, and in terms of last thoughts, I think, I think people should continue to ask questions, to really pay attention to the facts. And, and not to be deceived by sort of, you know, simplistic um, constructions and answers and to really not just look around, but to read and learn and, and, and understand each other in a much more complex and nuanced way. And I think we can connect around our humanity while honoring our, our diversity and that way create more inclusion and ultimately more equity and social justice. Thank you. Yeah, and and I would um, and I can be reached at Soulfire Consulting, S O L, as in the Sun Fire Consulting. And I guess what I would want to leave um, your audience with, Seema, is is the idea that it benefits all of us. I mean, I know your emphasis is on inclusivity, and that's a lot what we emphasize is we're all better when we're able to have these conversations and we when we really not just tolerate the differences but embrace them and part of that embrace is, is not coming to it as an expert and saying i've got all the answers i know exactly how to deal with hispanics these are the three easy ways to deal with hispanics it's not that simple because it really is 
um, about learning and about being curious. So whenever we meet difference, instead of moving away from it, you know, that's fascinating that you, your life is so different from mine. Rather than wanting similarity, the juice is in the difference. And I think that's when we realize that the, all society benefits from our inclusiveness, then it's a skill we all need to work on. Both uh, Placia and I do leadership development and particularly focusing on Latinos and Latinas many times. So we're available for presentations, workshops, you know, working education related to these issues uh, all over the country. And questions. People could contact you if they have any questions, more questions. Of course. Absolutely. Please, we definitely. Quite, definitely. And don't worry about saying the wrong thing. That's it. Right. Yeah, yeah. We we all make mistakes in this stuff, so it's just a matter of learning. So I'm going to close out, but I'm going to ask you to stay on for a couple of minutes, okay? Because I have a couple more things I want to ask you. But I know it's at Sounds the end good. of our time. This is Sima, the Inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. Go to www dot race convo convo like conversation dot com to hear more episodes and help us get the message of eliminating fear of differences and bringing people together by sharing this podcast with everyone and you can reach me at sima lieberman dot com hit me up on twitter at the inclusionist you can invite me to speak at your next conference meeting or event and I'm signing off until next time when we have Steve Hanamora and Deb Daggett talking about disability and the race convo. There you go. Thank you. You could, you could still hear me, right? Thank you. No, no, yes. I was going to ask you. I said, oh, I don't want them to leave because I have to ask, I have to ask them something. How'd it go? Well, this is great. Thank you so much. All right, am I recording? Are they recording? Yeah. Okay. How can you say that? I Flat black plastic. It's special to... Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy They always live, right? You ever hear of a janitor getting shot during a fucking... You never hear about the janitor... ...about two white families fighting over real estate. You know? You you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, but, but the thing is, one of those white families is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Can you comprehend? But you know all I get is the same since I 
change I'll be on my way Hard times today My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. 
For too long, we have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. FM. From there, you can captain. I have wit. Not funny, but comedy day will be. A guarantee. Yet, anyway. Thank you for turning into an old episode of Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. Simma Lieberman can't be here today, but her show will be. We're going to play an old episode from... Uh, You're listening to Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People with Simma Lieberman here on MutinyRadio.fm as she is looking for... Another song to play for you guys. That was just from her guest who's going to be here. And we're trying to negotiate the dead air. We're not having dead air here. There's always something to talk about on Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People with Simma Lieberman, who loves hip-hop. So that's awesome. And it's going to be educating me on things more than just Lauren Hill. So <laughs> that was a joke for those who have, in the mid-90s, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, a hip-hop record. Hi, now we're going to be listening. Now we're going to be listening to Jada Imani and Kaylee J. And in And our guest should be arriving momentarily. What your vision is, my sisters I've been building with Honoring the feminine, cause masculine we swimming in A patriarch sooner fall, running to your paw paw Running down the dog off guard with the paws up uh, Pause, the nature do her thing If we keep interfering, she may wipe us all away And everybody busy on it, cranking the machine And wonder why so cyclically repeating history What you think? I think it's time to get bank for ourselves Own it or throw it away Currently, currencies losing value quickly 
land to you than planet food That's where the rich be, how's that feel? How's that for real? When you can't kill cause you need to rebuild When you can't stay still on your knees A refill of the handy pure Pharmacy, a bleed drill But a trip it is to fill the bliss of ignorance Deceits, burst of a queen I talk conquer misery, repentance Sin from living in a den of ill-conceived Till the moment that we need A reason that we breathe, uh When I compromise our sweet air To appease your blue vest Cause we got the right to be here So we take our truth back All on my own In a ghost town that I once Hi everyone, this is Simba the Inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People and you've just been listening to my next guest, Jada Imani. Hey. Hey Jada. <laughs> so Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People where we bring people together from different backgrounds, different races, different colors to have comfortable conversations on race, to be able to eliminate fear of difference and bring people together. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid to do so because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, or you're afraid of not being heard or being ignored, then this podcast is for you. So today, I want to introduce my next guest who I met recently at a benefit for uh, bringing hip hop therapy to, to people who've been in trauma, who've been traumatized. Her name is Jada Imani. She's an MC and head of a homegrown project called Tattoo Vision from the Bay, by the way, of St. Oh, you're from St. Louis, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you're, oh, you're not, so you're not even from the Bay Area. Okay. I've been here for 10 years. I've been here since elementary school. So, okay, then you you're know. from here. <laughs> oh, I'm not from here. I've been here for over 35 years. I'm from the Bronx, but I'm still from the Bronx. Okay? <laughs> so this year, Jada released a concept video directed by Aroma called Drip, available on Tattoo Vision YouTube. And uh, I played it earlier. Don't miss it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta look it up and listen to it. Jada began emceeing and curating ev- events at the age of 16. 16, y'all. When I was 16, never. Well, we didn't have these kind of events when I was 16. So since then, she's curated for Oakland Museum of California, Life is Living Festival, Kaiser Permanente, Aspen Ideas Festival, and more. And we're gonna hear more about her. She also leads workshops for public schools and special bookings. Jada hopes to use performance and healing arts to connect disparate populations to promote health, critical thinking, and self-love. And that is what Everyday Conversations on Race is all about. Yay. (laughs) So, Jada, people can't see you. Oh, first of all, let me just say, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much. Oh, okay. And let me just say this. I just started recording recently at Radio Mutiny. Uh, this is a cool spot. It yeah, it is a cool. It is a really cool spot. Yeah, shout out Old Soul Collective. I've seen Equipto and Old Soul Collective here too. Yeah, it's I good. just connected that. It's good. Yeah. So this is. So I'm I'm new with all the equipment. You know, you, you heard me record before. I had my own equipment. Now this is much more sophisticated. <laughs> so we may have a glitch or two, but that's okay. It's cool. So Jada, would you just um. Describe yourself since people can't really see you. Yeah. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm. Both of my parents are black and white, 50 50. So I'm a light skinned black girl. Um, I have caramel skin, uh, kind of 
petite features kind of uh full lips but like a kind of a like pointy nose it's like a interesting combination between black and white features uh, I've, i present very hip-hop i think i kind of have like a street hip-hop look but i also like to mix it with the professional look so maybe you'll find me wearing some creased slacks with some adidas <laughs> you know what i mean but yeah uh, right now i'm wearing i have braids but sometimes i have very thick nappy hair so sometimes i'm wearing an afro um yeah yeah and they could they could look and they could look you up which i'm sure people will do so today we have cross-race conversation and we also have the cross-generational conversation because as many of you know i am a baby boomer so okay we're, we're fixing the microphone right now okay cool all right Jada, it was so great to meet you and to hear and to hear you perform. I was so impressed. So I said, well, I got to have this woman on my podcast. Thank you. You just like jumped out like a lion. I'm like, hey, I loved your enthusiasm and passion for this. Well, you know, this podcast is like my life. This is this is my dream for so many years. Mm. Now, if I was probably much younger and it was today, I probably would be able to do my podcast in one day and say, hey, I want to get a podcast going on race. Okay, let's go. And it would be happening. But anyway, this is how it is and it is how it is. Or what they used to say when I was growing up is what it is is what it is. What it was is what it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Jada, tell me, uh, why do you think it's important for people to talk about race across race? Why do I think so? Yeah. Um, I think it's important for people to talk about race all across the board. I'll start with that and then get to across race. Um, okay. I think that race is an important topic because we're all being influenced by it. Um, and uh, most of the times it's in a way that we haven't yet examined. Like we are not aware that we're being influenced, but we are by the way that people look. I really do think that there's been tons of exper experiments done that show how on a subconscious level we're all um, you know, motivated, influenced by how we see people, the, the color of people's skin. And um, the more that we examine that, the more that we can um, have the power to control that and not let that control us. So we need to start thinking about race and being really honest about what we think about different races because we all have different prejudices and assumptions. Um, and assumption, yeah, it's a lot better to examine them than leave them unexamined. In terms of talking like cross-race, that's a really interesting thing. Being black and white, I'm on like, I have the two like polarities that are in this country. That's like the longest lasting war almost. It's like um, black and white. Like you can't get like a more opposite than that, you know? So it's really interesting thinking about bringing these two sides together. Um, although I also kind of subscribe to the belief that it would be good to start within your racial group and talk to your folks first. And then once you're more healed and more clear within your community, then begin to talk to other groups. Um, and from myself being in the middle, like I'm in a very peculiar situation when, with the conversation about race. So hopefully I can be used by the greater force of good to um, yield like my interesting middle positioning to like help both sides but i'm still figuring out my role there but yeah i think we all need to start talking about race and starting in our own homes and really starting um to like you know really examine our own hidden beliefs 
Yeah, and I like what you said about starting our own home. Mm-hmm. I was at, I went to see a documentary which was amazing about the Oakland Interfaith Choir, mm-hmm. the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. And, you know, that's very multiculti, multiracial, multi everything, age, religion. You know, they got Christians, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, all kinds of people in it. And a lot of people said, well, this is what America needs to look like. This is what it needs, you know, people hang together. I said, but you know what? This is what people's living rooms need to look like. Mm. I said, because it's not enough, you know, you just like go to an event, which is cool. I mean, I, I, everybody should go to events that are from different cultures. But if you don't really get to talk to people, and then you want to be able to talk to people like everyday conversation, but I also like what you said about people need to first start talking amongst themselves, get healed, and then start talking. Now, one of the problems I see sometimes um, and, and this is just my own experience, my own observation, is a lot of times like I'll see a lot of white people, and this is not to disparage anybody because I think anything anybody does to eliminate racism is important, but sometimes I'll see white people only talking to white people about mm-hmm. race. They go, well, first we only have to talk, you know, I got to talk to white people about race. But then what I don't see enough of is then branching out and reaching out mm-hmm. and you got to be able to branch out and reach out and know that maybe you're going to be uncomfortable maybe we can talk about something else Emma Lieberman the inclusionist here with everyday conversations on race for everyday people where we bring people together from different backgrounds to have a cross-race conversation about race if you've ever wanted to talk about race but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or afraid of not being heard then listen in. I'm so excited to introduce my guests today, who are two very close friends of mine, Juan Lopez and Sid Real. And Juan and Sid and myself and three other people are co-authors of a book called The Diversity Calling, Building Community One Story at a Time. So Juan and then Sid, because people can't see you, I'm going to ask you to please share a little bit about yourself, who you are, a little bit about your background, okay? Okay. So let's start with you, Juan. Well, as you said, Juan Lopez. I grew up in Pittsburgh and Concord, California. I run a business called Amistad Associates. I have been involved in diversity, equity, inclusion, organizational change, uh, community organizing for a number of years. I... um, I guess I was blessed to be called into this work in about 1982 or so with uh, Dr. Price Cobbs. And it's a calling that's continued for me to discuss not only diversity, but all the dimensions uh, that come about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, we're all different in in different ways, everybody who wrote the book. So would you just share something about uh, your cultural background and maybe your age or your generation? You don't have to say exactly how old you are, just your generation. I have no problem sharing my age. I'm 63. (laughs) I identify as Chicano. I'm third generation Chicano in the Bay Area. Family moved to Pittsburgh in 1928. Um, I think probably the descriptor of me would be I'm about 5'8". I like to wear hats (laughs) and earrings. And uh, I'm in... um, and I'm passionate about all of this different work, both not only diversity, but uh, Chicano activism and spirituality. Okay. Now, Sid Real, 
tell us a little bit about you. And then we're going to talk about, then we're going to get to talking about race. So go ahead. Okay, I'm Sedalia, and I go by Sid Real. I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. I'm one of six children. My family originates from Northeast Texas and came to the Berkeley area in around 1943, I believe. My parents came away to, I mean, they came this way to work in the shipyards during the war. And the other fact about them, uh, we're an African-American family, and they were getting away from lynchings and other atrocities that were happening in Texas during the 40s. So my question now is, uh, we could start with you, Sid, and then, and then go back to Juan. Why is race, why is, talking, why, is, why is race and why is talking about race important to you? Talking about race is important to me because it's so much a part of my life. Growing up in Berkeley, which is known as a very uh, informal and uh, progressive town, also has had its issues with race, including redlining in neighborhoods and other situations where people of different races are kept apart, even though it's an international community. So I experienced some racism growing up, and it's always been a part of what's happening in my life. And then as an adult and going into college, I had an interest in education and training. And of course, part of what you experience there is what's happening with respect to how students of color are often treated differently and in many cases are treated as less than compared to their white counterparts. Well, Sid, would you uh, share one? You said you were exposed to racism when you were young or you were victimized by racism when you were young. Could you give us an example? Because a lot of people really don't understand what that means. I I can think back to the third grade, being in a classroom, and our our classroom was multiracial, but it just so happened that a new white family came in who came from either Mississippi or Alabama. They'd been a sharecropper family, lived down the street from me, and my third grade teacher had the audacity to pair me up with him for us to share a book. And um, he started calling me the N-word and pushing me and saying that he wanted his own book and that sort of thing. And when I went home crying and told my mother about it, she told all of us, get whatever you can, get a broom, get a mop, get anything. You're going to go down there and beat him up and make sure he doesn't do anything like that to you ever again. And so that was my rude awakening. Well, I find that very interesting that even at that young age, here's this kid coming in to your school or to your class or to your seat and telling you what he wants and calling you names. Not unlike what we've seen here in the Bay Area, even like in Oakland where we've had people come in to neighborhoods that were primarily black. We've had people come in and start telling black people that they're singing too loud in the church singing too loud in the church, having the nerve to barbecue on the lake, all of these different examples of people in their white privilege not seeing that a person of color has just as much right to do and be anything that they want as anybody else. So 
Well, l- let me let me get to you, Juan. Uh, tell us, t- would you share a story with us about why race is important to you and why it's important that we talk about it? Growing up, race was not always talked about directly, but there were many comments and inferences made that I was unclear about growing up um, from my uncles and my aunts. And, and my mother, I think, talked in ways that are very much, uh, we would describe as internalized depression. And she would make statements about uh, interacting with whites or how whites viewed Mexicans. And she always talked about it in a less than way. And she always suggested, which was, was a bit complicated because it was hard to read, that you had to be careful because you could be hurt, injured, um, or any number of things because of the way you look. And I think it, it hit me the strongest uh, after President Kennedy was assassinated. And I remember coming home and walking into the front room and my father was home and he was watching the news and he was crying. And I was not accustomed to seeing my father cry. And, and he, he just kept saying as he was looking at the, the news, saying, what's going to happen to Mexicans now? What's going to happen to Mexicans now? And, and I was trying to make sense of this, but essentially what they were talking about was, in fact, based on our uh, ethnicity, how we were being treated, how racism played out, how they experienced, experienced racism, and that it never seemed um, like you had the power, but you were always in a position where things or, or people could hurt you, but never talked about directly. Yeah. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, you're sh- sharing stories of when you were younger, but we just had a black president, and are we post-racial? So does racism still exist? Do we still need to talk about race today? I think we need to talk about it now more than ever because it's really prevalent throughout our experience here in the United States and around the world. I think that uh, people are still being made to feel less than, not having the same opportunities, being questioned about their credibility and their competence in ways that hadn't been happening for a little bit of a while, although I think it was always just a a myth or a hope or a dream that we were post-racial because we had a black president. If anything, some of the ways in which people responded intensified in some conversations I've had with some of my white friends, they talked about knowing people who were white who woke up when Trump, when, not when Trump got elected, but when Obama got elected and said they couldn't get out of bed because now a black man was the president of the country. Okay. Well, I, so, so did they stay in bed? I wonder, did they stay in bed until Trump got elected? They got out of bed maybe just to go vote? No telling what they decided <laughs> to do. <laughs> let, me, let me follow up on, on yeah, uh, Sid's response. I think it's pretty clear that we have a racist president. I think the comments that he makes about different people, different ethnic groups, and different religious groups, he makes it really clear um, who the others are. 
And I think when we look at what has happened on the border with kidnapping, um, what's happened with such brutal policies, says to me that the racism has has become intensified. And you see examples of the protests, you you hear about more white supremacist groups talking about um, strategizing on inflicting more racism. We see people in the community, in various communities, um, beating up on people of color. And we find a whole lot of mistrust in our communities of color towards police and other authorities. And much of that mistrust is based on how people view each other through the racial lens. So I think, I think now what we're talking about is even more intense. Um, and as Sid said, going from what people wanted to believe as being post-racial to now where we're seeing such obvious uh, expressions of racism is a real clear indication of the current state of where we're at. Well, let's talk for a minute about DICE. Now, I'm part of DICE with the two of you, and we have several other members. Would you uh, talk for a minute a little about, about DICE and what DICE is and about the book that people from DICE wrote? Yes, uh, DICE is uh, the acronym for Diversity Community Exchange. The nine authors of the book all met at a conference called Diversity 2000. It's actually a gathering of diversity and inclusion practitioners that comes together annually to commune with one another, learn from each other, and in some cases collaborate and work together. And one of the things that we decided to do was come together to write a book about our own personal journeys and experiences as a way to talk about our work as a calling. And the calling is how we can build community one story at a time. So by hearing about nine different ways people came to be in this work, what their life experiences are, gives people an idea of all of the ways that you can become a part of this diversity and inclusion community through the work that you're doing and doing it by sharing each other's histories listening to one another, and finding ways that the work that we're doing can reach further out into other areas because we all work in different sort of um, sectors of the employment workforce. Now, some people would say that they've never seen people be able to talk about race. Some people would say, oh, I'd like to talk about race, but I can't, and they don't want to talk to me about it, and blah, 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 blah. In writing this book, would you say that it really encouraged the conversation about race? And if somebody was going to read this book, uh, that you think that it would encourage people to talk about race? I think the book, as it said, is a, it's about nine people, um, Sid and I, Dr. Jojo McManus, um, Tommy Smith, Santa Linda Marrero. Well, you, yeah, Simone yeah, Lieberman, um, 
and Sonny Massey and uh, Dr. Marvin Smith and Nadia Yunus, we all wrote this book. And unfortunately, I would say, um, well, it's unfortunate because two members of our um, group have passed on. And I don't think it's an accident that, that African-American men, those are the two that passed on, um, the impact of racism in their lives and how they shared their stories uh, has had a factor in their uh, longevity. And, and they talked about that and how growing up and dealing with that impacted them and how they saw the world. So I don't think our group was reluctant to talk about race, but we did it in the context of our stories. And I believe all of us have a story and central to that story is our experience, our identity, how we see ourselves in the world. And our race and our ethnicity is a part of that. And if you can't bring that into the conversation, then there's a central part of who you are in the world that's not being shared. And so we embraced that and felt like by us coming together and talking about our stories and what we experienced, that we were encouraging others to get together, to share their stories, maybe to write a book, and to talk more and deeply about these kinds of things that have helped shape who we are in the world. Well, what lessons did you learn from each other? I learned uh, to listen more carefully about the experiences people had, which included racism and sexism, and how it impacted people in terms of their insight, their awareness, their confidence, uh, their capacity to be um, human in the world. I, I, I learned uh, how to appreciate being with people who share such intimate information about each other. And, and these are sacred stories. And when you hear them and, and you approach it with that sense of sacredness, I think we learn more about each other and we learn how we can support each other more effectively. How about you, Sid? What, what are some lessons you learned? Well, I think first and foremost, the notion of hearing someone else's story requires that you're listening to what they're having to say to you. And it's a real lesson in something that a lot of people just don't know how to do, which is to suspend judgment about other people. So when you have a notion about who somebody is based on how they look or where they come from, and you don't know the story behind who they are as an individual, you might make some assumptions about them that are incorrect. And by hearing the full story and hearing it from people the way they want to share their story rather than you coming up with the questions about their different aspects of their lives but them just telling their own personal story, it opens up the opportunity that there may be things that you have in common. You might learn about what some of the differences are, the different approaches people may have to dealing with the same kinds of situations and issues. And so it really expands your way of being by having that connection with people based on their own personal story. Now, you talked about you talked about assumptions that people might make about each other until they share their stories. 
have either of you been in situations where you where you realized that you had made assumptions about another person based on how they looked or what you knew about them until you heard their stories that that you'd be able to share with us? Um, well, I can uh, think about one of our members who passed away, Marvin Smith, a very large, imposing African-American man who was a policeman, and he worked in Parchester Village, North Richmond. I have relatives there who knew him, and just the fact that he was so large and in charge and imposing and had such a presence, it would make some people reluctant to engage with him. The Marvin I knew was the kindest, sweetest, so approachable kind of person, and you would never know that on the surface just by who he was uh, as somebody who was formerly in law enforcement and then was in the role of the EEO director and diversity manager at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. So he he made a transition in his career, and I'm sure that he brought that same uh, larger-than-life presence into that kind of work as well. Uh, one, how about you? What assumptions did you have you found that you've made and then said, oh, no, now that I know this person, so not, so not true? Everybody makes assumptions, but a lot of times people don't want to admit that they make assumptions because they think, oh, it's going to make me look bad. So it's very helpful to hear about times when other people admit that they've made assumptions and then that they've been wrong. I've made assumptions uh, about a lot of different people and, and their motivations and when I've looked at their body language, um, I might have thought to myself, uh, they have a certain belief system or a certain demeanor, uh, or they don't like me, or they do things and I don't like them. And then the narrative in my head just continues to grow in terms of why. And uh, I, I no longer, are, or I, I mean, I should probably say the narrative being that I make this assumption and then I build the story to support that assumption. As I've gotten older, I've worked real hard at, at not trying to put people in boxes because my experience has been that when you get to know somebody across race, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom that they share. And the more you can build an authentic relationship, the more you're able to communicate and share in that way. And assumptions prevent that from happening. So I've, I've done that a lot. And Could you share what, an example with us? Um, I, when I started um, graduate school, there were certain other graduate students that um, had a demeanor about them, some of the white folks. Uh, and I found that uh, I immediately put them into a, a, a category of being privileged or not knowing anything about my reality or my struggle or what goes on in, in our community. And um, I discovered that as I got to know them, they were very knowledgeable about race. They were very committed to dealing with um ending racism, um, they were outspoken. And um, they became very good friends and allies. Um, and some of them even um, 
participated and, and helped support me in going after some big issues that we had as problems at school with the dean who we thought wasn't really looking at bringing more faculty of color in that could speak to the service needs of our community in the Bay Area. Well, when we wrote this book, we had a lot of uh, discussions. What, what do you think, what were some of the challenges? Were there any, anything particularly challenging about us all writing the book together, since we all came from such different backgrounds? I think just the very fact that we were from different backgrounds automatically made it a little more complicated to come together and decide how we were going to write this book. And so ultimately when we all decided to write our own personal stories, it meant that each person's story didn't have to look like the next person's story. You could just totally go out there and write about what you felt was important and significant to put into writing uh, about your own individual story. So it gave us a certain amount of freedom about what we were going to do. And I remember the many, many meetings and gatherings we had where we started sharing little kernels of what we would be writing about and that's where the excitement started really coming in. We also knew Marvin, who was sort of spearheading the whole notion of writing our stories. I think a lot of it came from his own personal fascination about how different we all were uh, in terms of the work we were doing and our life experiences. And it was the excitement of telling our own story, which for me was the first time I really put it down on paper about some of the experiences I had. And then the joy of hearing about other people's stories. Uh, we just got really excited about getting the book published and showing to people and demonstrating how you can be coming from different places, but you can have the same purpose in life, the same intent about what you want to do and the work that you're doing, hence the diversity calling as part of the name of the book. How about you, Juan? What were some of the challenges... Were there any challenges in bringing so many of us together from such big, different backgrounds? Well, I think as people share their stories, some of what happens is you're going through a process of, of remembering these stories, and sometimes there's trauma tied to those stories. And then you decide, do I really want to write about that? And, and what we found is that it, it forced us to begin to talk about some of these things that you may not have talked about or you tried to forget. So we created a, a, a bond where we became more open. And sometimes stories change. What you thought you were going to write about and what you ended up writing about it changed. Yeah, um, I did. And, and then sometimes you're reading it and you're asking for, for some real feedback about what you're talking about. And, and as I said, it's not always easy when you, you're trying to put words on paper about these experiences. You know, I talked about my brother's suicide. Um, I talked about uh, being knifed. I talked about things that uh, were very personal, that were tied to race and internalized racism. And, and I tried to tie it together in a way that wasn't just a war story, 
but was about individual learning, sharing, um, and, and hearing from the co-authors uh, where they gave, we gave each other feedback about the stories and what should, you know, what we might want to do differently. But it, it was like building a family and having a lot of trust and giving each other feedback and listening to the pain that was in the room. Yeah, and I think that we knew each other, we thought we knew each other well, but it wasn't until we really started telling our stories that we got to know each other on a much deeper level. And I don't know if you how often you see that when you have people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different races, different sexual orientation, where people really can get that far down. But it seems to me that if you really want to have a conversation about race and you want to bring people together, you need to be willing to go that far down. So what do you think, what, what, what are some of the things that are most important for people, like say you have some people, a group of people from different, different backgrounds, maybe you have a white person, a black person, an Asian person, somebody's from Africa, somebody's from um, African-American, somebody's from Japan, somebody from China, you have all different backgrounds. How can they start to have the conversation? Particularly if they have not been around people who are different than them that much. What would you suggest? I think one of the things is sometimes you start with the experiences that people may have in common. Mm -hmm. And uh, finding out, for example, that somebody is from the same hometown that you're from, or um, even from different towns, but maybe there's something else that you have in common, your major in college or your particular vocation, that you start from there. Maybe the similarities help you at least begin a conversation. And then from there tell your story and see how there are differences in terms of what your life experience is compared to what somebody else's life experience is. And I think in particular in doing the work of diversity and inclusion, we encounter people from all walks of life who are a part of this journey around uh, making a difference in the world when it comes to how people relate to one another. And so if you can kind of draw out what's going on with another person, not only are you learning about them, sometimes you're helping them learn about themselves in ways that they had never talked about before. And oftentimes in some of the training and workshops that I conduct, that's the reality of what happens with people is that it causes them to think about and talk about and perhaps write about some of their experiences that they don't think have any value or they don't necessarily remember them until you start talking about some aspect of being a human being on this planet and what brought you to who you are today and then there's an opportunity to look at what were happening to you in your formative years, what are some of the pivotal moments in your life that made a difference and may have caused your journey in life to go in a particular direction that maybe you didn't have in mind before. Now, have you had any experiences, say like with a white person who you started talking to them and you could tell 
that they were maybe a little afraid or they were a little standoffish? Have you had experiences with people like that and then you were able to find a connection? Because in a way, if they're feeling freaked out, you actually are the facilitator in that conversation. Yeah, and sometimes it's a matter of asking questions or it, or just trying to clarify with them if you can kind of sense some uncomfortableness in them being with you. Finding something that's sort of neutral to begin a conversation with, whether it's a, around what kind of salad you're eating or, you know, maybe the color you're wearing or something like that that might help you get into a uh, deeper conversation about who they are as an individual and you can't always find something in common with someone else so if that's the case talk about what's different and from a position of being appreciative of the difference that they have from you and hopefully finding a way to see that there's something positive about finding differences with one another. Well, what would you say to someone who says, well, we are in trouble. We need to do this now. I don't have time for any of this touchy feeling getting to know each other. Let's just deal with the issues right now. I'm in a hurry. Well, what, what would you, what, what, how do you deal with that? What do you say to somebody like that? Is that helpful? Is it a hindrance? What? I think talking about race and building relationships and learning to respect each other uh, and hearing each other's stories is fundamental to any kind of movement. I think if a group doesn't build that sense of purpose or what the, the norms are going to be between them, then you can jump into any conversation, whether you're saying, let's try to end racism now or let's just have this conversation. You need to do it in a way that allows for people to be heard. Particularly, there are many examples where people of color have not been heard. And, and purposely not been heard. And that um, is part of the assault that's race-based on people of color where they're invisible. And uh, they're treated as though they have nothing valuable to say. So if somebody says, all this touchy-feely, or let's just jump into it and let's do this or that, they're already conveying that they're not interested in getting to know who you are. And if you don't get to know who each other are in, in your stories, how can you sit down and talk about something as complex as race, um, as painful as racial experiences, or as liberating as trying to figure out how we could better um, work together to end racism, particularly as a policy? Wow. And that's actually, to me, that's very profound because it's also a way of responding when somebody says, and a lot of times, not all the time, but I find that oftentimes the people who will say, well, I don't have time for this. Let's just deal with this racist, blah, blah, blah. They tend to be more. Now, I could be, you know, I, again, I'm not overgeneralizing, but they tend to be more white people who might think that they know it all and they know how to deal with it. So I think that when you, when you have the mindset that, well, then you're not the champion. You're really still ignoring me if you don't want to hear my experience. I, I, it will impact the quality 
of the dialogue and the level of depth in that relationship. People of color don't always want to be in a position where they have to bleed to educate white people on racism. White people always want to hear the story. Um, but then when they hear the stories and they hear the pain, they get oftentimes uncomfortable with it. And that's what I've experienced a lot in different groups. So sometimes to be able to have this kind of conversation in a meaningful way, you have to be prepared. You have to be open. You have to be authentic. You have to be committed from the beginning to the end. And I have found that if people don't want to do that, I don't necessarily need to have those kind of conversations with you. There's plenty of people I would love to have conversations with who are as committed to addressing racism as I am and are willing to do like we did in the book, go deep, uh, share, make decisions, build relationships that are going to last a lifetime. Do you have any examples? I mean, I, I'm just, I know I'm putting you both on the spot. Uh, do you have any examples of maybe a situation with somebody who was from a different culture, different background, and as a result of having a conversation, they moved the needle a little bit, or you moved yours? Well, I, one thing that comes to mind is using an exercise where we have people pair up with someone else and talk about the story of their name, and it can be their first name, their middle name, last name, or nickname, but just what is the story behind what your name is about? And it's a simple request on the part of the facilitator to just get people talking and to talk about themselves, which the reality is a lot of people just aren't accustomed to doing that, especially in a, a workshop or some sort of training situation. So by first modeling what a name story might look like and then having people share it with just one other person, it kind of gets their toe in the water of being able to reveal something about themselves in a way that hopefully feels safe because it, how you are named, there's no question about whether it's right or wrong or maybe, you know, somebody who is, has that same name, but it was for a different reason. You, your story is your story. And once you kind of, kind of lay the groundwork for people to understand that everybody has their own story about a variety of aspects of who they are as a person or their family or any of those other situations that go directly back to them as an individual, it kind of prepares the water to go deeper as you go along once you've established something as simple as describing where your name came from. I think, again, I'd go back to looking at the issue of racism. One might assume that it's people of color and white, but it isn't always that way. Sometimes it also involves black and brown and other dimensions. But I think one of the learnings that occurred in writing of this book was that I had a chance to get to know Marvin and Sonny differently. And they were both really uniquely two different 
human beings and different as African-American men. And uh, so I grew up not trusting police. So Marvin being a police officer, we had to <laughs> have some conversation. I, I just said I was really lucky that I never got arrested by him when I was in Richmond. And we'd laugh and talk about it. But what I also enjoyed is that um, Marvin um, was committed to the African-American struggle. And he was... Um, very clear about what that that challenge was and and how to deal with it and uh, he was very proud as african-american man and i was very proud as a chicano and sometimes we'd laugh when when we had uh sporting events where we saw two boxers uh, uh, a mexican boxer and a black boxer and we're rooting for our own to win and we're teasing each other you know and and it was funny because um, we also were able to talk about how we viewed each other's cultures and and got to learn more about each other. I mean, he certainly grew up with stuff about Mexicans. I grew up with stuff about African-Americans. And our ability to get to a point where we trusted and loved each other and, and loved each other's commitment to their community was, uh, I think, pretty profound because I know... There were times when um, Marvin challenged other African-Americans on statements they made about Chicanos or Mexican-Americans. And on his job, where he took the lead in making sure that diversity programs and services were being